Hi there, welcome to Western Water 101, where we talk about the history, future, and issues of water in the Western US. I'm Sarah Porterfield, Water Policy Associate for Trout Unlimited. I've lived all over the West, from growing up in California to college in the Pacific Northwest, to working as a raft guide in Utah, and now living in Boulder, Colorado, where I work connecting federal policies and programs and on-the-ground projects with TU. And I'm Brennan Sang, born and raised in Michigan, but I spent around a decade in Montana. And like a lot of Easterners who headed west, I was struck by how different our relationship to water was in Michigan compared to the high desert of Yellowstone country. And as director, uh, digital director here at TU, I've you know read a ton about water in the west and our efforts out there, but I don't really have the historical, political, or scientific background to really you know, fully grok all the issues. So Sarah, I'm, I'm really excited to keep talking with you and you know keep putting our work into a larger context. Yeah, me too. Uh, and today we're going to, in our second episode in this podcast series, we're going to talk about the shift in Western water um, policies, decision making, general culture from conflict to collaboration over the years, starting uh, in about the we'll, we'll start most of our story in the mid 19th century with the beginning of Euro-American development of water resources, right? As, as we've talked about in the last episode, indigenous peoples were here, have been here since time immemorial. They're still here um, and they obviously have been uh, water users for the um, entirety of their existence in these places. And I want to note that, you know, this is what we're talking about. Mostly are systems created by Euro-Americans. Um, but I also want to acknowledge at the same time that indigenous use far predates these systems and right. continues today. Um, and when we talk about these systems in that we have that, you know, the, the systems of reservoirs and large infrastructure that we talked about in the first episode, the legal systems that we have that govern water use uh, and water rights, um, these systems started in about the mid to late 19th century. And these were and, and the history of water use by Euro-Americans, right, by by um, the United States government has largely been governed by two questions. Um, these central questions have shaped water use and development from the mid 19th century ish until the present day, even though the meanings of these questions have changed along the way or the okay. way that we ask them. Um, and these two central questions are first, how much water is there out here in the arid West? Right. Remember that we're talking about a place that's that's quite dry right. um, compared especially to the Midwest and the more humid East. Uh, yeah. And then the second question is, what is the best use for that water? And I think the important word to pay attention to in both of these questions is that that word best in the second question, right? And the right. definition of best use has changed over time. But these are the two central questions that have really guided uh, American po water policy in the West. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. If you want to figure out how to use something, you'd want to figure out how much of it you have, right? Sort of take stock. I think that's the, that's a pretty logical thing to do. And then to try and decide what, yeah, exactly, what, what best for it, right? So once you know you have X number of dollars, you know, you know once you know you have $3, you know, as a kid, you can buy a Coke and a bag of chips or something like that. And probably aging myself. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but, but that's what I, I could have bought more than that, but uh, I'm not going to, yeah, we don't need to get into that. Um, but then I think, again, you can, you can kind of look at what the best use is. My best use of $3 as a, as an 11 year old uh, would significantly different than my best use of $3 as uh, you know, a 40 year old. So that one seems like it has more room for conversation and discussion, but 
Something tells me that, it, that deciding how much water there is isn't necessarily as easy as it might sound. <laughs> no, it's certainly not. And that has, you know, obviously how we measure water and, and you know, the, how much water there is has changed over time as well. But I think that both of these questions help us get at this history of water use in the West for this past, let's say, 150 years or, or so, century okay. and a half or so. Um, and the shift from... Uh, conflict to collaboration, right? Um, have you heard the phrase whiskeys for drinking and waters for fighting? I sure did. I, I heard a whole <laughs> lot of that when I moved out west. That was uh, not necessarily in the west, but as I was heading out west, that was a, a pretty common refrain from, from folks in Michigan uh, telling me what they knew about the west. Yeah, yeah, this is pretty common, right? It was not said by Mark Twain, um, as many quotes are, you know, wrongly yes. attributed to Mark Twain or Ben Franklin, I think are probably the top two. But it, it, this this quote of whiskeys for drinking, waters for fighting, right? It gets at this idea that when water is scarce, there will be conflict over water, or it could be any resource that becomes scarce. But in this case, it's water. Um, and this is a common perception today, right? That that as water is that water in the West is only a source of conflict. Um, but what we've actually seen over the course of the late 19th and through the 20th century into 21st century is that there's increasing collaboration, right? Instead of going to, say, litigation between two states over water rights and water allocations, there's an increasing amount of collaboration uh, between water users, between states that are, you know, there's more of a willingness to come and sit down at the table and talk about the difficult issues and find a way through them. This does doesn't mean, I want to be really clear about this, that there's not any conflict, right? But that conflict is dealt with in a different way. It's part of the collaborative process. And I'm not saying we're never going to see lawsuits over water again. We're never going to see conflicts over water again, but that we've seen an increased amount of collaboration over the past really, you know, I'd say um, since the 70s, 80s, really the late 90s, especially in the Colorado River Basin. I was I was impressed in Montana how 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 collaborative it was even you know in the in the early 2000s you know when i when i got there um what i knew about western water was sort of that that line there you know waters for fighting but it pretty clearly i started seeing these projects where you know tu or some other organizations had worked with ranchers to help you know restore these these beautiful, these beautiful streams, you know, and people would go in and, you know, do do great habitat work and then have these fantastic fisheries um, that both benefited recreationists as well as the ranchers. Um, and so mm -hmm. I was, you know, pretty quickly, I realized that while, yes, waters definitely can cause some conflict, it, it, it seemed like even at that point, that wasn't necessarily the case anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that in order to understand this shift towards increased collaboration, it's worth taking a, a look back at the water systems in the West and how they came to be. So going back to that, you know, mid 19th century ish time frame to think about, you know, why are these the central questions? Um, right. How much water is there and what's the best use of water and how to uh, and how those questions have changed. The meaning of them have changed over time. So as 
The United States of America expanded westward in the mid-19th century. Um, of course, there were people who lived here already, right? As we've already talked about, indigenous people were here and using water and, and other resources and resided here. Um, since time immemorial, there were French-Canadian fur trappers who had you know, traveled throughout and lived in the Amer- what is now the American West. Right. Uh, there were Spanish um, and then Mexican uh, colonial settlers throughout the present-day American Southwest. Um, but as the United States of America expanded westward and expanded their territorial acquisitions to, you know, encompass sea to shining sea, as we, right. you know, sing mm-hmm. today, yes. um, <laughs> there was this desire and, and any nation does this right, um, uh, particularly colonial nations, uh, there's a desire and a need to know what is in the land that is being acquired, right? Right. Um, And so since the really for the United States, since the beginning of the 19th century with the Lewis and Clark expedition, there's a series of surveys that we see happen to to understand what this geography is that has been acquired. Somewhere between like a map making expedition and an inventory or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And what we see over the course of the 19th century is the kind of survey change. So up until the Civil War, even with Lewis and Clark, uh, what we're really seeing is surveys or expeditions uh, to find routes of transportation across the continent. So, you know, Lewis and Clark goes beyond the bounds of the Louisiana Purchase, you know, to go all the way Mm -hmm. out to the Pacific. Coast on what's now in what's now Oregon. Um, and sure, they're cataloging things as they travel, right? They brought back an inventory, as you described right. it. Um, it's a great way to describe it of plants, animals, people, etc., that they yeah. encountered along the way. But really, they were trying to figure out, like, how big is this thing, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> how do we get to the ocean on the other side? Yeah. So the inventory was sort of secondary to the, the navigational need. Yeah, yeah. And we see this continue through the 19th century, right, or for at least the first, you know, half or more of the 19th century, um, that these surveys were looking for a Northwest Passage, right, mm-hmm. a water route across the continent that kind of would have been ideal, right? Can you take uh, ships across the nation through a series of large rivers or lakes and make it to the Pacific Ocean, right? That would cut down on time to connect trade to the Asian world, et cetera. Um, eventually we do have that kind of with the Panama Canal, but that takes right. like, you know, a hundred years and plus and some pretty uh, uh, incredible engineering <laughs> to have right. happen. And, um, a, and, and that, and that ended up being a little bit, a little distance from the headwaters of the Missouri. So um, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. A few thousand, probably I'd have to look it up on Google maps, a few thousand miles South. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's this desire to, to figure out how to get across the continent, whether it's by water or later in the 19th century, um, the railroad surveys uh, were a major way that, that um, the U S government came to understand the West, right? Looking for uh, railroad routes on a, in a variety of places across the country to build a transcontinental railroad. And then after, and not to say again, like Lewis and Clark, that there weren't um, artists who were out sketching the landscape, right? There were geologists who were out there trying to understand what the rock uh, types or or the geology, the landforms, physiography of the nation looked like. Uh, But that kind of um, inventorying wasn't the main purpose of those expeditions. Those expeditions wanted to find a way across the continent. What's the most expeditious way to do this? Yeah. And then after the Civil War, we see the focus of surveys shift to being about cataloging, right? Just what you were saying to, you know, what exactly is out here? 
Um, and one such way that, or one of these kinds of surveys that we see is an irrigation survey. And I want to read a quote from a historian named uh, William Dubuise. He wrote a great book called Salt Dreams, Land and Water in Lowdown, California. That's all about the Salton Sea in Southeastern uh -huh. California. That's this like strange, partly human made, but partly not human made amalgamation of a landscape. Right. Uh, and he does this whole deep dive um, about the Salton Sea. But I think he has some really interesting things to say, not about not just about surveys, um, but in particular about an irrigation survey. So let me read this quote from him. Yeah. A survey does several things. It converts wild land into property susceptible of ownership and available to markets. More than the removal of native people or the eradication of predators, a survey confirms the taming and domestication of space. A reclamation or irrigation survey does even more. It measures the fall and drop of potential waterways, the quantity of land that might be placed under ditch, the spacing and alignment of canals, the location of diversions, head gates and overflow channels. It provides a blueprint for a closely controlled physical world. Hmm. So we can see in Dubuise's description, right, kind of this first question, how much water is there? Right. Right. Uh, this desire to know because we knew the West was arid. We knew it didn't have as much rainfall or as much water as the Midwest or the East Coast. So, OK, if you're dealing with what's perceived as a scarce resource, how much of that resource is there? Right. And then how do we, quote unquote, best put it to use? Right. That's interesting as looking looking at that at those surveys. You, you can really see that change from from exploration to really laying that foundation for turning this land into something that I'm guessing by those standards would be considered productive, uh, useful, and, and therefore probably beautiful as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And we can actually see this shift in those surveys in uh, one person whose name is mm -hmm. John Wesley Powell. Okay. He was a Civil mm -hmm. War veteran. Uh, he lost his right arm. It was his right arm in the Battle of Shiloh in the Civil War. He fought for the Union side uh, mm -hmm. and he was this self-taught naturalist geologist, you know, kind of your yeah. typical late 19th century Renaissance man who had no formal education, really. But, you know, eventually he would become the director of the U.S. Geological Survey wow. um, as well as the Bureau of Ethnography. Okay. Um, so this this kind of jack of all trades. Right. Right. And he's the, the person who um, probably more than uh, anyone made the Colorado River Basin visible and legible to the U.S. government right on a national level. And okay. his first survey, of course, there's people who lived here before that, right, who intimately knew these geographies. But he's the first Euro American to um, float the Colorado River that we know of. So his first mm -hmm. expedition gets at this, uh, that first kind of survey, right? Even though it took place after the Civil War, his first mm -hmm. expedition was by boat down the Green and Colorado River uh, in, you know, to see could, could the Colorado River be a mode of or a highway for transportation via boat to get to the Pacific Ocean, okay. right? Mm -hmm. Turns out it's not great for that. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of rapids, et cetera. Right. A, a few um, barriers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A few barriers. Yep. And Powell wasn't particularly uh, well prepared for this journey. He ordered some boats made that were round hulled, uh, which oh. works great on flat water. But in white water, they're pretty unstable. Right. Right. Um, so he ended up uh, with his, I don't remember how many men he took with him, 11, maybe seven, something like that. 
uh, you know, they would portage or walk around a lot of the rapids and either carry yeah. the boat. They'd have to unload all the boats, carry all the stuff around, and then either line the boats down, basically letting the boats yeah. through the rapids, holding onto ropes, or carry the boats around. They're super heavy boats. I want to say they weighed, I don't know, a couple thousand pounds or oh gosh. maybe less than that, but they're really heavy, yeah. right? Versus a boat today, you know, a rubber raft unloaded weighs maybe like one to 300 pounds. Right. Um, so they would portage these rapids or align them. Um, so that first expedition that he undertook and then a second one a few years later were a little bit more in that older version of survey, right? That they wanted to um, fill in the topographic map, right? This was, as uh, many have described, the last blank space on the map, uh, okay. the Colorado River Basin. Of course, again, right, indigenous peoples lived here, knew these geographies intimately. But this was a blank space as far as the U.S. government, Euro-American settlement was concerned. Largely, there'd been some some exploration here. Um, mm -hmm. But then later in the 19th century, we can really see how Powell shifts more into that latter category of survey, the cataloging, the, the inventorying, right? Um, right. When in 1888, he started a uh, an irrigation survey in order to understand, okay, how much water is there out there, right? You, you know, measuring stream flows, et cetera. Um, and then where are the lands in the West that we can irrigate and grow crops on, right? Remember in the last episode, yeah. we talked about the idea of reclamation, right? To reclaim a landscape by making it um, productive by planting crops in it. Right. In these later surveys, he's not just out there figuring out where to go and how to get there. He's figuring out what we might be able to do with what is there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So he's figuring out, OK, how much water is there? Right. And then also the second question, uh, what is the best use of that water? Right. And it's right. Pell had a little bit different idea than many at the time. Right. He wanted to divide up um the West into lands based on what they were best suited for. So you okay. could, you know, file for a claim like a homestead claim on, you know, 2,500 acres if you were on it to graze because cows needed a lot of space to get enough forage to be able to right. graze. Um, you know, you could file for a smaller claim if you wanted to irrigate, right? I don't remember exactly, how, maybe it's 40 acres. Um, mm -hmm. There was lands that he classified as good for timbering, right? For, for sure. um, what we think of as national forest today. Um, that part of his vision didn't get adopted, right? We stuck with the 160 acres. Generally, that explained it a little, expanded a little bit under the Desert Lands Act. But what his survey did do was start to give people a sense of, you know, where where are the lands that could be irrigated and be turned into productive, air quotes there, right? Uh, farmland, right? Um, under this kind of reclamation movement. Um, so, right, yeah, this is the best use of water in this at this time was to reclaim the desert, make the desert bloom by turning it into agriculture. Right. Whether that's grazing or irrigating, I picture him with a notebook sort of sketching out, you know, planning a city, kind of playing a, a you know, an early version of SimCity in his head, looking over the <laughs> landscape. We'll have a farm over here and we'll grow our timber over here and, uh -huh. you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's kind of trying to fit all these pieces together. Um, yeah. And, you know, he what he estimated the irrigated acreage in, I think, the entire West. I don't remember exactly what the number is, but it is it's basically the same as what is irrigated today. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so he was 150 years ago or so. He wasn't that all that far off. 
And and so that that reclamation survey right helps to answer both of these questions: how much water is there, and and what's its best mm-hmm. use. The the survey actually doesn't end up getting finished; um, it gets cut off because of uh, political wrangling, um, which is a long story we won't go into here. So it doesn't actually get you know finished in the sense of like oh, we've. Mm-hmm surveyed and inventoried every corn nick and nook and cranny of the west Um, but we can see uh the continued idea of like right what's the best use of this water um in the national reclamation act which we talked a little bit about in the last episode right this is what year that was that was 1902 okay yeah called the Newlands Reclamation Act um, or the National Reclamation Act. Um, and this is the the foundation for Western water development, right? This law um, funded the construction and maintenance of irrigation infrastructure throughout the West. And that was going to be funded by the sale of public land um, that would be served by those developments, right? So yeah. you can plan a project that's going to irrigate X amount of acres. When you sell that acreage, that will pay for the construction, repay the cost of the construction of this project okay. um, in the West, right? So again, this is a, a law focused on um, answering the question of how best to use it, right? By creating the infrastructure needed to make irrigated agriculture happen, right? right. And that's not to say that irrigated agriculture was the wrong answer to that question um, no. at all, but that was the answer. Uh, and basically the only answer given by at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. Again, that's one that, you know, we might not make the same decision today. But again, we have to give some credit that people were working towards what they believe would be best for both the nation and the land itself. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for the most part, that's, um, you know, under the Reclamation Act, that's that's irrigated agriculture at the time at the, you know, we talked last episode about um, the beneficial uses, I think, under prior appropriation law, right? That could be irrigation. Right. It could be municipal water. It could be mining. Uh, those were kind of the, the main uses of water um, at the turn of the century, right? Mm-hmm. Um And as we talked about last time with this uh, construction of large scale infrastructure in the West, the Reclamation Act is really what made the construction of those infrastructure systems possible. Right. It provided federal authorization of the construction of these large scale projects, um, which, as we talked about last time, really took off with Hoover Dam in the 1930s -hmm. and Grand Coulee Dam during the 1930s as well. Um, And at the same time, the, you know, this definition of best use expanded to include um, hydropower, right? Okay. Um, that these big yeah. dams could produce a lot of power to, to power, you know, the growing citil- cities of Seattle and Portland in the Pacific Northwest if you're building dams on the Columbia, right? Um, Hoover Dam could help power the growing metropolis of Los Angeles and Southern California. Yeah. So to, to continue on that thread, right, to work on continuing to expand the definition of best, Um, After World War II, we do start to see a greater diversity of interests um, starting to gain attention for different uses of water, um, particularly in the recreation and environmental uh, movements as well. And that's really when we start to see recreation in general really explode. Uh, camping starts to explode after after the Second War. Yeah, all this sort of outdoor recreation and travel, too, that wasn't terribly accessible to, to a lot of the country starts to really beef up during that period. Yeah, after World War II, we have, um, you know, prosperity at a scale widespread 
prosperity, of course, it's not hitting everyone at every income level, but, right. mm -hmm. you know, uh, prosperity at a scale that America hadn't seen since really, I don't know, the 1920s or so. Mm -hmm. And even then wealth was pretty stratified, right? Um, right. And then, of course, we had a decade of the Great Depression, right, in the 1930s. And then we had, a, a you know, half of a decade of um, rationing and scarcity because of the war effort in, right. in Europe and in the Pacific. So after World War II, there's this burgeoning prosperity that Americans could, you know, now had disposable income. Um, there weren't wartime rations anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was also coupled with the introduction of new technologies that had been developed during World War II that made, you know, outdoor sports much more doable, right? Um, right. As well as combined with, you know, things a little bit later, the, you know, Interstate Highway Act that created, you know, even more car friendly infrastructure or the Mission 66 project starting in 1956 that, um, you know, upgraded infrastructure at national parks to be able to handle the increased visitation at the time. Yeah, we had state funded camps here in Michigan. We'd have these groups of roadside cabins. There there aren't many of them left, but yeah, the same same sort of time frame, this kind of initial boom of outdoor recreation and national travel, I guess. Yeah, there's a whole See America First campaign, right? right. That after mm -hmm. the war you could go travel and see the country that maybe you had fought in a war to preserve. Well, at the same time, we're starting to see the introduction of new technologies from World War II, right? A lot of ski technology comes out of the 10th Mountain Division and out of soldiers who were who were in the mountains and using skis to, to get around and do their job. And we also, in particularly uh, important for rivers in the West, we see the introduction of army surplus rubber rafts uh, mm. that really are what made whitewater rafting become a pretty mainstream American activity to do for a summer vacation. Oh, that's interesting. So these rafts developed for use during the war. After the war, they came back and were, were sold to individuals and used on big Western rivers. Yeah, you know, initially, um, like Powell's boats, right? Um, yeah, they got better with their designs. But you know, boats were were made out of wood. Right. And um, if anyone out there has a dory, or you know, someone with a dory, right? Uh, those boats tend to break when you hit rocks, right? Or do some significant damage. I don't touch anybody's dory because I don't want to get yelled out, you know, when I, I inevitably fair. run them into a rock. Um, yes. I'll stick with the big rubber boats. Um, but, you know, wooden boats were were seen as pretty dangerous, right? Because right. they could get broken apart, right? Um, they, they were pretty delicate. They would or could get a hole in them if you hit a rock, right? Right. Um, and for the the initial group of commercial river runners, right, folks who were taking uh, customers, paying customers out on the river for a day trip or multiple nights in a row, um, wooden boats weren't very profitable. You couldn't fit a lot of people on them, right? So okay. you could maybe fit the person who's rowing and like one, maybe two passengers. Oh, with okay, you. yeah. But after World War II, these these river runners who had kind of started running rivers, they were some taking paying passengers. Um, Norm Nevels was one in Utah uh, and the Hatch family out of Vernal, Utah was another group. Um, these folks uh, started, well, they, they were originally using rubber boats to run rivers and the Hatches in particular, but there's a few who kind of adopt the, these new technologies at the same time. Um, the Hatches are the ones I'm most familiar with because I did a bunch of work on them for my dissertation. They started getting these army surplus boats. Uh, and they would get um, 10 man uh, like landing craft. They look okay. a lot. If you see a picture of them, they look a lot like your kind of standard 16 foot rubber boat today. 
Uh-huh. Um, they were used to land on beaches in the Pacific for right. you know quiet water landings um, mm-hmm. to get from a ship to, to shore. They also started using 27-foot bridge pontoons uh, oh. that look like a really big rubber boat today, um, right. but they would be used to set up temporary bridges. Um, and so they're really big. There's You can watch videos uh, of these 27-foot-long boats getting rowed down the Yampa River in Colorado, wow. western Colorado. <laughs> they look awful to row. Um, you know, I've rowed 18- and 20-foot boats, and those are large and, you know, seemingly uh, ungainly enough as it is. Um, the hatches would put two sets of oars on a 27-foot boat. That still seems like a lot of a lot of boat to move around. <laughs> it's still a lot of boat to move around. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I guess the advantage is they're very stable. You're probably not going to flip over, right? <laughs> right, and 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 hopefully rather durable as well. Yeah, you know, not only could were they lighter, not only were they they you know pretty stable, um, but if a rubber boat hit a rock, it was probably going to. I mean, I've hit lots of rocks in my <laughs> days on the rivers. Mm-hmm. Never put a hole in a boat, or at least a major one. Um, you know, you're probably not going to destroy your boat beyond use, right? You can patch a rubber raft just like patching a bike tire, right? Or a bike tube. And these uh, army surplus boats, they were also designed to have multiple air chambers because if they got hit by a bullet, you didn't want them to sink. Right. So I think a 27 foot boat had like 11 chambers or something like that. So you could put a hole in one. It's going to stay floating. You can get to shore and you can fix it, right? Yeah. Wow. So yeah, what a big change. Yeah, just uh, a... Perfectly suited towards what it what it was repurposed for. Yeah, yeah, I would. I don't think I would call twenty seven foot long boat perfectly suited, but it did the job, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yep. the other advantage to these rubber boats is that they could carry a lot more people. You know, in a video of a Sierra Club trip, um, I think I counted like thirteen people on a twenty seven foot oh long gosh. boat once, which uh-huh. also sounds awful to you know right to get move it downstream yeah but possible right so versus yeah. and you know you could fit like three people or more on a on a 16 foot you know 10 man mm-hmm. surplus boat versus the one or two that you could fit on a on a wooden boat right so right. you can make a lot more money uh as a commercial raft guide also right. if you're on a wooden boat as a passenger these old older wooden boats that were called sat irons you often would have to like plaster yourself to the deck of it in like a spread eagle position. So you couldn't actually see what was happening when you were oh, going wow. through white water. <laughs> right. So I, I bet you there's got to, there was probably something kind of interesting and novel about doing that as well. Right. It's this new technology. It's uh, something that used to be hard and rigid is now, you know, softer and more squishy. <laughs> and Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I'll keep using the Hatches, the Hatch family as an example, um, because they're the ones I'm most familiar with. But but again, these kind of commercial companies that use rubber wraps are popping up all over the West, mm-hmm. really all over the country, I think, but mostly in the West. Um, and so you have this new technology coupled with this outdoor recreation boom after World War II, right? So you mm-hmm. have this kind of like perfect storm for people to become river runners for americans to become river runners so you Uh really see this um increase during the 1950s and 1960s in people who like go river rafting for a summer vacation um and to bring us back i promise this all connects to our original two questions right to bring this back to the best use right um what we really see in the mid-1950s is that because of this boom in outdoor recreation because the hatches are able to take paying passengers right um, we see the outdoor recreation and environmental 
concerns and industries really start to um, become a loud voice in defining how best to use water, right? Right. Um, in the early 1950s, there was a dam proposed on the Green River in Dinosaur National Monument that would have been mm. constructed just downstream of the confluence of the Green and the Yampa River in Echo Park, but it was called Echo Park Dam. Okay. Um, and Dinosaur National Monument is where the Hatch family ran all of their trips on the Green and the Yampa. Right. So, so because of their involvement there, they knew about this proposed construction, right? They happened to have a member of the Sierra Club board on... Uh, or the son of a member of the board on one of their trips. Um, this guy, one of the, the Bradley family, brought it to his dad. I guess dad was Harold Bradley. Uh, Harold Bradley brought it to the Sierra Club and got David Brower and the whole Sierra Club uh, involved in this Echo Park Dam fight. Yeah. So the Sierra Club starts taking these big trips of like a hundred people at once, which like oh, wow. as a former guide, I do not want to deal with a hundred people at once <laughs> on the river. <laughs> No, I don't want to deal with 100 people at once in, in nearly any circumstance, actually. Yeah. Yeah. But because the Sierra Club starts running these trips, because the hatches are able to offer commercial rafting trips, um, it becomes a major national campaign on behalf of the Sierra Club to defeat Echo Park Dam, right? Um, right. One, it would be in a national monument, which is dinosaurs run as part of the National Park Service. So it'd be like mm -hmm. building a dam in, in a national park. So that's kind of a, a from... Sierra Club public perception standpoint, a strike against the dam, right? Right. Um, and then also people are becoming accustomed to be able to go river rafting if they want to, you know, for right. their summer vacation. So they don't want to see these landscapes, these beautiful, I mean, this is, I've spent a lot of time on these rivers in Dinosaur and they're, I love them. They're gorgeous. They're stunningly beautiful. Um, and so uh, there's a, a huge amount of public um, energy behind the campaign against Echo Park Dam. You know, Congress is inundated with letters writing in opposition to the dam. Um, and so this is how we start to see the changing definition of best use, right, for uh, for Western water. Right now, that uh, recreation and environmental concerns are included in that definition of best use. And this is by the, you know, 1950s, and it only continues to that, that those voices in support of those causes only continue to grow in the 60s, 70s and beyond. Right. And I think that as Americans started to having more access to recreation, those resources became important to them for different reasons. It, it was no longer just how much we could irrigate or how many cattle we could feed, but if all the water's been diverted somewhere else and we can't run this river, we're going to have a lot of un unhappy people. And so it kind of brings another another voice to the table there. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Echo Park Dam didn't end up getting built, but kind of in exchange, um, Glen Canyon Dam and Flaming Gorge mm. Dams did. Um, Glen okay. Canyon Dam is uh, just full, just it's in Arizona, but just below the border with Utah. And then Flaming Gorge is above Dinosaur National Monument. And the reason that, um, you know, the Yampa River, which is largely undammed, normal year, you can raft that between, I don't know, March-ish to mid-June-ish, and then okay. you kind of run out of water. There's not enough water mm -hmm. to run that river because that's a natural hydrograph, right? Peaks with snow melt and runoff in uh, late yeah. spring, early summer, and then it declines. But you mm -hmm. can run Lador Canyon year-round because of the releases from Flaming Gorge Dam above Lador Canyon, right? Um, right. So that dam there is beneficial to the recreation economy 
in this area. And it's also beneficial because it supplies water to irrigation, right? It supplies water downstream to um, uh, to municipalities, to hydropower, et cetera, right? right? So all that to say that there's a, a very complex web of best uses that all inform each other, right? Right, yeah, from all those voices, you know, you, you would expect there to be conflict, but, uh, you know, you know, the, the title of the episode's a bit of a spoiler uh, in <laughs> that, uh, you know, we've, 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 we've slowly been moving from that, the sort of conflict that you would expect to be created, you know, while varying interests, you know, sort of squabble over a, 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 a resource with perceived scarcity, you know, where we're, we, we start to figure out how to work together with, within those different, different voices. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Echo Park Dam fight is referred to as a fight, right? This mm-hmm. certainly is a conflict um, at the time. And, you know, into the 1960s, there's, again, highly pub- publicized fights over, uh, you know, potential dams in Grand Canyon that weren't, those mm-hmm. weren't built. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a, a Supreme Court decision in 1963 of Arizona versus California, right? Litigation conflict between the states led to their needing to be a special master appointed and, you know, the federal government to come in and kind of arbitrate this this conflict. Um, but what we do see starting in the later 20th century and into the 21st century is an increase in collaboration, right? Okay. Rather than these fights, which there's still conflict, right? There's still yeah. Fights over, you know, proposed infrastructure or whatever the conflict may be. There's still conflict out there today, but we do see this movement towards increased collaboration in the later 20th century and into the 21st century. Yeah, it seems like a um, a change in the number of bests we're working for, right? Uh, it seems like we, you know, it, the if I if I look back at it, you know, best had a pretty narrow meaning for, you know irrigating or grazing but you know we started to add uh, recreation to that and then we are and we also added hydropower to that so we start to see these different different uses and i think it's it's interesting that that i'm i'm, I'm sure there was a, there was more conflict as more voices came to the table but it's interesting that as more voices began coming to the table as more different uh, ideas of best that th- th- that's when we found the collaboration that's when we started being able to find a way to to make more stakeholders happier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, we can see this in a couple different examples. Um, one is in the Yakima River Basin, and we'll call this the portfolio approach, right? Right. And in the Yakima Basin, um, it is a more holistic approach, and there's a lot more diverse stakeholders uh, involved there. Um, and the and this, the, the kind of governing document doctrine or document for this is the Yakima Basin Implementation Plan. And it's the result of a group that's comprised of these diverse stakeholders, right? Agricultural producers, conservation NGOs like Trout Unlimited, uh, the Yakima Nation of Mm -hmm. indigenous peoples who who are um, indigenous to that area, irrigation districts and state and federal agencies. So you can see, right, we have irrigation, we have hydropower, we have the environment, we have tribal interests, um, recreations probably in there too, right? As well Mm -hmm. as state and federal interests that are involved in this approach. And this portfolio approach means looking at what the whole watershed and its residents, both human and non-human, need to Mm -hmm. survive and thrive, right? So um, components of this plan uh, or, or projects that come out of this plan include right construction of fish fish 
passages at various dams, right? Uh, making sure that the infrastructure needed for irrigation is getting upgraded, right? We've talked about aging infrastructure yeah. in the West, right? Getting those irrigation infrastructure upgrades done, um, you know, conserving water so that in a, you know, as climate change makes the West more and more arid, um, there's enough water to go around, right? In-stream flows, uh, water that's dedicated to staying in the river or creek or whatever body of water you're on in this basin uh, for the benefit of aquatic species, right? Right. Um, provisions for the Yakima Nation to continue to hunt and fish in usual and custom places, right? Um, I don't know the details exactly of what their agreement is within this Yakima Basin Implementation Plan, but you can see how these diverse water, or diverse interests in a watershed can, uh, in examples like the Yakima River Basin, um, come to an agreement about what shared goals are, right? And how right. to reach those so that people's, all users, human and non-humans needs are being met. And not to say that there's probably, you know, wasn't no conflict in the, right. uh, constri the constructing of this agreement, right? But that these users were able to come down and come and sit down at the same table to find these common goals and work towards them. Right, and I, and I think that what we're starting to find is that a lot of the times these seemingly conflicting interests have very similar solutions, right? Like if, if, if you want to make sure that, you know, you have decent flows in the river for either, you know, running rafts or for, for irrigation or for hydropower or whatever you're needing, water conservation and using less water in other places is, is great for all of those things, mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's like a lot of things where we, we start to open, th open up those voices and move from, from that conflict into a more collaborative method that we start to realize that a lot of times taking care of something helps everybody rather than just, you know, a, a single voice. And you can actually, yeah, you can actually help out the irrigators. You can help out the ranchers while also helping, you know, the people that want to, that want to fish on the stream, the people that want to run those rivers. And I think it's, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's really interesting to see that, to see that shift and that it happens as more voices come to the table. And I think it gives me hope for how we handle things down the road. Yeah. Yeah. And another example of this, that, that is quite not that the Yakima Basin Plan isn't forward looking, but another example that that's also very forward looking is in the Colorado River Basin, right? There's, um, we mentioned the Colorado River Compact that was, um, done in 1922 that apportioned water between the states, right? X amount for each upper basin and lower basin, and then the state the basins apportioned it between themselves. Um, but in the early 21st century, there was uh, what's called the millennium drought, right? This series of really, really dry years that really started around the early 20th, 21st century, the really bad drought in 2002 that tanked reservoir levels in the Colorado right. River Basin. And so the states mm -hmm. came together and said, hey, like <laughs> our reservoir levels, you can see this in a graph, it's, in a graph, it's just this like precipitous decline in reservoir levels, right? Like we need to do something about this. We need to come to an agreement as these seven states and figure out how we're going to keep reservoir levels at a place where they both supply water and generate hydropower, right? And so this uh, led to the creation of the interim guidelines in 2007, uh, which are essentially an agreement between states for um, reservoir operations and using reservoir elevations as a trigger point for different levels of shortages, right? Where states yeah. will, the states have voluntarily agreed to reduce their water use when uh, below their you know, allocated amount. 
um, when reservoir levels hit these certain triggers. Right. Um, so that's mostly states. Obviously, other folks had some input uh, in those guidelines. Um, the basin quickly realized that those guidelines didn't go far enough, right? This millennium drought continued beyond a few bad years, right? We're still right. seeing real bad hydrology out here, despite the fact that it's been pouring rain in Boulder for about 24 hours. Right. <laughs> uh, and throughout a lot of the West, it's pretty rainy uh, today. But right, that doesn't change the fact that the vast majority of the Colorado River Basin in the West is in pretty severe drought. It's that uh, old reminder that weather isn't climate, right? Yeah. Yep. And so in 2019, the seven states of the basin and the interior um, with an attendant agreement with Mexico that was, um, you know, uh, parallel to this this process within the United States, uh, the seven states agreed to the drought contingency plan, which took the 2007 guidelines even further, right, and agreed to uh, cuts to water use even sooner based on reservoir elevations in Powell and Mead. Mostly, these are mostly focused in Mead and in the okay. in Colorado River's lower basin, right? Um, but these were these are both examples: the DCP, as it's called, drought contingency plan, um, and the uh, original interim guidelines um, are examples of you know the states coming together to sit at the same table to figure out, okay, we got we got real bad hydrology. How, how do we address this? But the 2007 guidelines are set to expire in 2026. And so, um, mm. you know, before 2026, those guidelines will be renegotiated. And what we're looking at is likely a much broader diversity of stakeholders, tribes mm -hmm. at the table. They were not at the table and almost any decision in the basin uh, up till this point, but tribes are mm -hmm. really looking for and certainly should have a place at the table uh, for this next round of renegotiations. NGOs like um, Trout Unlimited, right. right? Looking for a place at the table. Um, irrigators, right? Agricultural producers, along with states and other irrigation districts, et cetera. Um, so, so, you know, we don't know what this process looks like yet or what the outcomes will be, but what we've seen in the Colorado River Basin is an increased diversity of stakeholders at the table, right, and increased collaboration um, moving forward. And so I'm really optimistic for what that means for the 2026 renegotiations. Yeah. And I mean, if, if it plays out similarly, you know, as we bring more voices, not only have more definitions of the word best, but it looks like we're more willing to find solutions that help prop up all each of those bests. Yeah, exactly. Use words and in ways that they're not often often used. I'll use best <laughs> as a noun just for yeah, fun. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So mm -hmm. we're consistently redefining. Well, one, we're we're still asking that question of how much water is there in the West, right? right. Because that is changing because of climate change, right? That mm -hmm. the West is becoming drier, becoming more arid due to climate change. So we're still trying to answer that question of how much water is there. And then also that second question, right, of how best to use it. And as you just said, right, that definition of best is expanding. And I think to the benefit of, of everyone involved, of all water users, both human and non-human, you know, the fish uh, and the you know wildlife and the people who right. either like to fish or drink from or float on these rivers. And this, you know, finding uh, finding these win 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 solutions that benefit, you know, for example, producers and fish and anglers is what TU does really well. And what we're going to do for the next few episodes of this podcast series is take um, a couple of a few in-depth looks at how TU works in on water in the West, right? How we're um, actively a, a part of this, you know, collaborative solution finding in a way that continues a thriving ag economy or, or makes it, you know, 
thrive even more, continues this agricultural economy right. in the West that benefits fish and wildlife habitat. Uh, and that also benefits, you know, folks who want to go out and recreate on these rivers or who want and need to gain access to clean drinking water uh, yeah. from these river systems that we have in the West. So we'll do this in um, three different uh, episodes. Next episode, we'll take a look at on the ground projects that TU engages in. Like, how do we actually go out and, and restore these streams and help, you know, um, upgrade irrigation infrastructure? Right. Uh, after that one, in the fourth episode, we'll take a look at how TU um, works with federal agencies to create good programs that are often the ones that fund these kind of win-win-win solutions. Right. Um, and then in the fifth episode, we'll take a look at how TU works on um, legislation and how those legislation can legislative uh, pieces can benefit the 21st century needs of the American West. I, I, I'm excited. I'm consistently proud to work at TU. And I, and I think one of the things that is most impressive and and also hardest to explain to people is all the different levels that we work at uh, on the ground. Like you're saying, rolling rocks, uh, we work with agencies, you know, trying to trying to help guide policies and, you know, bring our voices to the table while decisions are being made. And then we also, you know, can work at a national level as well with uh, with the legislature. And it's, uh, it's it's impressive to watch. And it's it's I feel very lucky to be part of an organization that works so broadly. Yes, I agree. Yeah, I'm looking forward to exploring these ways that TU works with you in the next few episodes. Sounds great. All right. Talk to you next time. Talk to you then. Hi, everyone. Brennan here. Thanks for listening to the second episode of Western Water 101. I really hope you enjoyed it. We've got more episodes on their way, and Sarah also wrote a companion piece to this episode, which you can find at www.tu.org slash WW101. Next week, we'll be talking to Paul Burnett about some really fascinating on-the-ground restoration work he's doing out in Utah. We're also planning a follow-up episode where we'd like to answer any questions you may have. So, if you've got questions, please hit us up via email at ww101 at tu.org. Again, that's ww101 at tu.org. Thanks again for listening, and we can't wait to catch you next time.